0: One thing that Gen um, Chah used to say is that sometimes he noticed that his Western disciples would use meditation retreats a bit like one would use a lawyer to spring one out of trouble. He said, you, you get into trouble in, in daily life and then you come on retreat to sort it all out, you know. And he said, it's a bit like you've got a good lawyer. <laughs> when you when you uh, get yourself into difficulty, he said. But you know, you really you really need to understand what gets you into trouble in the first place, you know, so that you don't need to to have a have have a lawyer. And so, in, in some ways, this insight meditation that we've been cultivating, this contemplative meditation is beginning to see the causes of where we get ourselves into difficulty. How we (coughs) manage to get caught up in states of suffering and stress. Um, And so that the meditation isn't just about getting more peaceful and calm, but it's learning to actually allow ourselves as we've been exploring to, to contemplate our experience as it arises, even if it's Unpleasant or uncomfortable for us. Also, contemplating the pleasant, but being able to contemplate all the changing circumstances and not just trying to use the meditation to, to sort of wall ourselves off somehow from life. Otherwise, although that has a certain benefit to be able to get calm and to remove ourselves from everything, but it, it will become quite limited. We won't be able to really integrate and, and work skillfully in our daily lives and from an informed place, from our meditation. In many ways, the, um, when the Buddha first started his practice, what was on offer with the teachers that he studied with was, was the, um, were meditations that were very dependent on completely removing oneself or himself or their selves from society, going off to live in a forest and living in remote places and practicing very fierce ascetic practices with a sort of idea of somehow transcending the world through this tendency in these practices to, um, to, to try and crush the body to get away from everything and to very refined states of consciousness. He, he learnt how to, the teachers of his, of his day taught, taught him how to actually attain these extremely subtle, very, very peaceful states of consciousness where there was neither perception nor non-perception, where there was no sense of anything happening. Just very, very subtle, very refined. Something that we can get attracted to as well. You just do our meditation so we just don't feel anything. <laughs> you just get this really refined state, don't disturb me. You know, it's, it's, it's very attractive, no doubt. And the Buddha became very good at it. He surpassed all the teachers that he practiced with. He, he, he realized in the end that there was no one that could teach him any more than he had learned. And they, the teachers said to him, Well, you're so good, why don't you take over the order? But he realized that there was a problem in the meditation that he kept coming down from these refined states, that it wasn't really, didn't really answer this deeper quest that he had. So he found himself then moving from that kind of style of meditation, he joined a whole new bunch of people that were practicing this fierce asceticism trying to crush the body from its needs if the body doesn't need anything then maybe that's the way to some spiritual realm so he talked about how he pretty much starved himself just would eat a few grains of rice a day how he would do all these kinds of different um, fierce practices but in the end, you know, when he was on the point of death, he started to think: might there be another way? <laughs> he realised it wasn't really working. You know, he—I mean—had he incredible willpower, but he just, you know, just succeeded in crushing the body and its needs. But it wasn't very liberating, somehow. And as I said the other day, it was at that time that. He had the memory of a child, being a child, and practicing this uh, anapanasati, the breathing meditation. It was a pleasure that he realized that one shouldn't be frightened of that pleasure. Before that he had some fear that somehow if he experienced something pleasant it would somehow keep him bound to the world. But he realized there's was a pleasure that was actually important to experience in, in this medita- simple meditation of being with the breath. And then he had the experience of be- receiving the, the milk rice from the, from the woman, Sujata, which he received and he took and he became nourished. He realized he had to nourish his body and have some health to be able to further his practice. But of course at that moment when he took that milk rice, then all his fellow ascetics thought he'd gotten weak, yeah, they, they abandoned him in disgust. Siddhartha Gautama has left the way, forsaken the true way, and they, they walked off. And he was left alone then to begin to pursue his own path. And it was at that point that he went to Budgaya and sat under the Bodhi tree and then vowed, not to move until he... He's a pretty serious guy, (laughs) serious meditator. He's vowed not to move until he had some kind of deeper awakening. So it's said that he sat through the night and through this night of his awakening, uh, different things happened for him. This was after many years of quite... Extreme and intensive practice, (coughs) and in the cosmology, many many lifetimes, as they say, of developing the parameters, these spiritual qualities. So he's at the cusp of this full awakening, and all the devas up in the heavens were cheering him on. (laughs) But there were also forces that were obstructing; didn't want it to happen as soon as there's some light, there's dark as soon as there's some opening then there's some obstruction this is how it is it works together as soon as there's awakening and enlightenment, there's the force of ignorance, mara so although there was a lot cheering him on all the devas looking down because they knew this was going to be a big deal this guy's about to sort of crack it and have an important effect for many other beings and they didn't want anything to go wrong there were also the the forces of what's called the forces of Mara that which deludes and sabotages and the, the force of ignorance appeared before him in its full array and everything came up for him, every fear every longing, every sense of duty everything that pulled the mind pulled him every desire and so he just sat there in the, under the Bodhi tree and he didn't go and crush Mara he didn't go and into battle he just simply said I know you and this is a bit like in our practice in our insight practice just having moments we don't have to crush and push away that which sabotages and undermines us makes us crazy, you just say, I know you it's just the power of this knowing mind to know that which knows And Mara it says slunk away Mara said, oh the Buddha knows me or the Buddha to be knows me and he, he disappeared for a while and as the Buddha continued he started working with his breath started to go into samadhi deepening his samadhi, and then three knowledges arose, what's called the three insights of the night of his awakening. The first knowledge that arose was that he saw all his many, many previous lives. He saw how many lifetimes he'd had, for eons and eons, where he'd appeared, what he'd eaten, what he'd said, what he'd done, karma, and how it led from one life to another life to another life. So this is recorded in the Pali Canon as the sort of archetypal story of the Buddha's awakening. All the different stories he'd lived through as we do, all the different many, many different, even in one lifetime we have so many lifetimes. (laughs) We don't have to worry about the other ones because there's already enough here to work with. And then he looked at other beings and he saw all, all the other beings, many, many other beings, and he started to contemplate how they arose here in this situation and what happened there according to cause and effect, according to karma. He began to see into the nature of karma and the causality that would bring about the different kinds of birth and lifetimes of different beings. This is called the second knowledge of the night of the awakening in the, the third great knowledge he started to see the, how the sense of self became constructed how this sense of arising and taking birth started, uh, happens through this primordial what's called the avidja the ignorance of the not seeing clearly the, not seeing the true nature the profound nature of reality the depth the reality of the of the unshakable heart, the jitta, there's this tendency, it's called the avija sankara compound, there's this tendency to find and try and locate and move towards a patterning, a sort of a, a sense of becoming someone which is connected to the experience of the sensory experience. It's connected to feeling the, the sense of what is experienced through feeling, thought, taste, touch, sight, sound. There's this movement and this sort of sense of becoming someone that sees, hears, thinks, feels, tastes, touch, has <coughs> memories. And that, that's becoming, of that sense of moving into a, an individual self called the, the 12 links of dependent origination that everything comes into form dependent on and comes into birth comes into being comes into, comes out of the seamless wholeness of reality into this distinct sort of individuality if you like so it's said that when he contemplated deeply this coming into birth this being a self, he also saw the deconstruction of that. He realised what's called nirvana. he realised the freedom of releasing from that tendency to take birth, to become someone, to move into time, to move into a sense of separate self. And he said then at that point, when he released from that tendency, when he let go and he tasted, he finally tasted, he finally realized what his quest had been about all, all this time, he realized and tasted the, 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 what's called the Amata Dharma, that there is a Dharma, there is a reality that is completely immune from death and change and impermanence. And he realised that, and in the realisation of that, he tasted peace, he tasted freedom. And he said that the, this, one of the utterances, he said, this house builder has the rafts that created this house builder, that which creates the sense of self over and over again, being born in all these different kinds of identities, has been broken. The ridge pole and the rafters and the roof and the whole lot has been dissolved, broken down freed, the jitta, the heart was freed. So it was a a very sublime, because, I mean, we might have moments of tasting freedom, but this was an unshakable, there was no return. This was immovable, very peaceful, very sublime. It's said that after his awakening, the Buddha stood for even one whole week just gazing at the tree under which he'd sat with eyes unmoving. I don't know if that was really true, but it's very poetic. You know, totally adoring this tree that he'd sat under. It's a very beautiful image that he'd sat, the place that he'd sat, in, uh, which is now in um, Bihar, in Budgaya, the Vajra seat. It's said in the mythology, in the cosmology, it's the only place on earth that could handle an awakening of a full Buddha. If you've been to Bihar, you understand why. It's a really difficult place. <laughs> it's a very interesting that he was enlightened in a place that's really now very—it's a very difficult place to be. And it wasn't in Hawaii, on the beach. You know, it was in... It, <laughs> He was awakened in, a, in, in, in the dust and the difficulty of, the, of this particular spot on the earth. It was a very sacred spot. Yeah. I think Kitty Sarah and I went to Budgaya once we decided to have this great big beautiful puja and trans for all sorts of blessings to all sorts of beings, and we had it all laid out that what we were going to do at this holy, holy spot, we'd end up having the worst arguments of our whole marriage. <laughs> <laughs> On this perfect day, you know, it was, it, it's, you know, it was very interesting. <laughs> so we, were, we, we had this, we were going to give out, we got all this stack of rupee notes, we were going to make offerings, because all the... Beggars are sitting there. I mean, you have to run the gauntlet of the beggars as you go into the temple. So we were gonna like one start at one end and one the other and make these off and we caused a riot. Because suddenly everyone just sort of and then we had an argument about what you know, you went first and no, you should, and we didn't, and then the whole thing, our whole day just collapsed. (laughs) So it's perfect, it's perfect. (laughs) This is the place of awakening, it's gonna bring up the most The dark, you know, and also it turned out to be the day that there was one of the worst riots in India. Actually, a lot of people got killed on that day. So it was a very intense day between the Muslims and the Hindus about the Ayodhya Mosque that they've been fighting about forever. So the the Buddha, you know, when he had this this uh, beautiful, and then there was this reluctance said that he was like blissed out. And he realized actually what he had understood is actually very subtle. It's actually very hard to communicate. Can't really capture it in words. And so he, didn't, he, he was reluctant to, to do that. And, and at that point when he was about to just sort of retire from the crazy world and go and, you know, hang up his Zafu or the equivalent and go off to the Himalayas or something, It said that one of the great gods came and Hang on a minute. <laughs> one of the great gods came racing down to earth and appeared before him. This great radiant deva called, called Brahma's Come came down from the Brahma realm, which is interesting. It's the realm of creation and forms, subtle forms, I say, oh you haven't finished yet. <laughs> no, they didn't say that. The Brahma Sahampati knelt before the Buddha and said, please, there is that there are those with a little dust in their eyes, and for the want of you, if you don't not explain the Dharma, they won't find the way from the relief of suffering. So please, out of compassion, please go forth into the world and teach. You know, so this so this in a way, this archetypal Movement from our awakenings, however small they may be, but they the, they don't become fully embodied somehow until we begin to find ways to articulate and live them. Mm-hmm. That's this the, you know to complete the journey, which is a very challenging thing, and no wonder the Buddha was reluctant. You know, but he he did, and then it's said that his first Dharma talk wasn't really that successful which is nice to know <laughs> if you're in the job of giving talks, that, that some person came along and said, oh you're really radiant and who are you and, and the Buddha just said, I am the all awakened one, I am the world transcender there is no one more enlightened than me and words to that effect And the guy looked at him and went, Well, that's nice for you. (laughs) And it said in the suttas, he went off just shaking his head. It's like, you know, it didn't really work. I mean, in a way, that was a really accurate lion's roar of his state. I am the all awakened one. That is, in a certain way, that's our true state. Not that we should go around saying that necessarily, but it's not a statement from ego. But the guy, he couldn't hear it, he wasn't able to really get the transmission although it was one of the most pure transmissions so then it's said that the Buddha I mean this is the archetypal story we don't really exactly know perhaps what happened but the Buddha is said to have then left Gaya and he started to walk to Varanasi which is a long walk and uh, by the time he got to Varanasi he began to formulate a different way of teaching rather than saying, you're already enlightened. It's like, what do you do with that? There's nothing to do, nowhere to go. It's true in a way, but there's a certain way we we can only really believe it unless we know it. So it's said that as he got to Saranath, uh, Saranasi, where he was about to teach his... Uh, first real powerful it's called the Dhammachaka turning of the wheel of the Dharma he, he was met by the, his old ascetic comrades who looked at him and said oh here comes that slacker Gautama let's just ignore him you know he fell away because he had the milk rice from the young maiden you know tut 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 but he said that when he approached he was so radiant and so peaceful that they couldn't but help receive him and set a seat for him and and become interested in what he had to say and it's at this point that he gave his first dharma teaching called the um, Chaka pavatanasutta which means the turning of the wheel of the dharma and the revelation of the four ennobling truths. And this really became and is the essence of the whole of the Buddha's teachings and transmission is within this four ennobling truths. And it's said that the Buddha would teach this teaching often in a, in a graduated way, first of all, doing what we're doing, teaching and practicing wholesome qualities, generosity and ethics, practicing, training the mind, being more aware of the body, just in the way that we have, and then when there's some receptivity, wouldn't necessarily just always teach these teachings, but when there was some receptivity and ripening, then he would teach these teachings on the four truths. And the first truth is actually a very human truth. It's not like you're already awakened, which is a truth, but it was, there is this experience of dukkha which everyone can relate to not everyone can relate to you're already enlightened but there is this experience of dukkha of, of it's usually translated as suffering as unsatisfactoriness stress sometimes it's translated as that which is hard to bear sometimes it's translated as that which is not dependable sometimes it's, uh, it's translated as as do being a a dirty and ka akash space dirty space. Meaning that when the wheel a wheel of a cart turns, the middle of the the cart is full of the space. It's very dirty so the the wheel doesn't turn so well translation I very much like is apart from the spacious, apart from the perfect, there is by the very fact of taking the incarnation, there is this experience of somehow being apart or separated out from the whole or from the perfect or from the peaceful. This is inherent. It's not anyone's fault or it's not because there's something wrong with us. We often experience interpret this experience of dukkha very personally as something wrong with me. But it's just actually inherent in the very activity of being incarnate. That there's this experience of dukkha and suffering. And he went on to say, you know, there's there's some suffering that's just inherent in taking form. It's called dukkha dukkha. <laughs> the suffering of things like getting a headache or aging or, or you know, the, the ailments of the body you know, this is something, or, or even the loss of loved ones you know, even the Buddha felt this, he said when his two primary disciples, Moggallana and Sariputra when they died he said it was like two great trees had fallen which gives you a real, it's a very lovely poetic way of talking about grief. Have you ever been close to a really big tree? I remember when I lived as a nun, I used to love to hang out. We had this incredible, huge oak tree like you have in in England. And I used to just love to to go by this oak tree. It was very soothing for me. And then one day we had this almighty hurricane which you never get in England, but we now we get everything everywhere. But we had a hurricane. I guess it was the beginning of the global warming. We didn't know about it then, like we do now. And this whole tree just got uprooted and smashed. It was huge, and I just—it was—it was devastating. It was like losing an old friend. Mm-hmm. And this is the image that the Buddha talked about. So he certainly felt loss felt pain, you say sometimes, oh my back's aching, Sariputra why don't you give the talk, I can't do it tonight mm. or when his people, he tried to his, he knew because he had the divine eye open and he had psychic ability he knew that his tribe, his people were about to be slaughtered in a war and he knew the karma of it as well he could track all the story and the karma, but he tried to avert it three times he tried to stop this happening tried to negotiate and he couldn't stop it you know, his, the karma was just too strong and it said that he, he, he went away feeling sad you know, so these are the sorts of do it's not that the alleviating of suffering that the, Buddhist, the Buddha talked about means that we won't feel these things or we suddenly magically won't feel pain in our knees anymore <laughs> But there's a certain dukkha that is generated from the minds, from the ignorance of the mind, that can be alleviated. And this was what the Buddha was talking about. It's, uh, it's the, the inability of the mind to understand reality. There's something, this avijja, not seeing clearly, there's this tendency to move into Relationship with our experience in a certain way, where we in a in a certain way, how we do that, we generate this experience of stress and suffering. This is where in the in the second noble truth uh, talks about Ajahn Chah put it very simply, but it talks about the movement of of what we how we project onto the moments of our experience in a way that we we generate this sense of dissatisfaction through what Ajahn Chahos would call it very simply the wanting and the not wanting of the mind. I want what's not here and I don't want what's here. Or the Buddha called the three forms of desire which we talked a little bit about. The desire to always try and absorb through the senses into something. Or the desire to become someone. (coughs) We don't feel we're enough yet, and it's you know it's okay to 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 work to to you know improve and to fulfil ourselves. But there's something about this this unconscious—not about the desires, wrong. It's the unconscious relationship relationship to it that drives us on and on and on, and never never allows us to taste the undying peace here and now because we're always being driven onwards. It's like my, my friend um, in South Africa who was, um, who was one of the CEOs of a, one of the top um, mining industries there. And uh, in a certain way was a very powerful man and very accomplished and had a lot of um, abilities. Very brilliant man. In the service of the gold industry, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. He actually was also a benefactor, helped, um, helped, found the Hermitage that we developed. and was very generous, but one of the things one he would be so stressed at his work um, because it because it was just so incredibly you know he'd be. Gambling really with billions of dollars and sometimes losing it. That um, I asked him once at one of these Johannesburg dinner parties after everyone had drunk a bunch of wine, which was always make me feel um, those. Those dinner parties, and cocktail parties, are so stressful for a Buddhist teacher, <laughs> with bankers and gold merchants, and, you know, it's like really a very strange world to move in. But I always found that once everyone had drunk their wine, it got much easier, <laughs> funnily enough, because everyone sort of, like, loosened up a bit, you know, and stopped trying to sort of sword fight with a repartee over the dinner table. So I was sitting next to this friend, and he was really relaxed. And I said, well, how is it doing what you do? You know, he was like, because often he was, he wasn't, you know, he was at a moment when he was a bit more open. How is it doing what you do? And he said, it's really difficult. He said, I have so much fear. And I have to suppress it to do what I do. And then at night, I have all these nightmares. So I said, well, when does it ever come to an end for you? When do you ever... When you're gonna ever be able to stop? And he said, When I'm successful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I'm successful and I was like, Okay <laughs> But that's you know, that's that's how desire works. It's how it works. You know, we can get to the goal, but if we haven't really become awakened to that unconscious force, it's, we still won't be able to really taste where we've got to. It was something will keep pushing us on, pushing us on. And then the, the complete converse of that is the, the, the desire, sometimes when we've had enough and we've experienced enough, we just don't want to be here. It's like we, we just, <clears throat> we want to not feel shut down, not exist. It's called vipa vedanha. It's very profound. It's something I've worked with a lot. I think it's why I'm attracted to meditation. Did a lot of meditation, trying not to be here. <laughs> Didn't really work that well. Yeah. But um, it's a it's a it's a it's a very um, it's a very deep sankara. It can be a very deep sankara. So these forms of desire that, that keep taking us out of relationship with the profundity of the peace of the moment, with our deeper nature. The Buddha said, we, you know, each of these four noble truths has a practice, the first noble truth of the experience of difficulty, rather than pretending it's not there, rather than projecting it and saying, oh, it's the problem of the world or someone's making me suffer rather than repressing it or denying it or rather than becoming identified with me, the, the endless sufferer, like a martyr. The Buddha said that in this first noble truth we train that mindfulness and awareness that we've been cultivating, we train that mindfulness and awareness to reflect on the experience of dukkha open to it in this vipassana when suffering arises to contemplate it and as we contemplate it we might be able to see this second noble truth to realise sometimes the suffering although it might be difficult that there's an extra suffering that we're doing by wanting it different it's not to say we should never make anything different but this is looking at, a, at the more subtle mechanism of the mind where we constantly generate we are generate the ignorance of the mind generates our dissatisfaction we, we generate, from not understanding the nature of how things actually are, that the world won't give us what we want, ultimately. We can't milk the sankharas and the forms of this world to satiate us at the depth of what we really feel, where we feel our deepest loss and lack of belonging and lack of wholeness nothing will really ultimately do it and yet we keep trying to do that and do that and do that. And so the Buddha said in the second noble truth when we see this wanting and not wanting and I don't want it like this and I want it another way and it shouldn't be and it should be so just let that go. Let it go. Let it go. And as we start to let it go then we have or let it be or don't engage and be pulled by those Power, the power of those desires. As we let them go, then we'll have moments let be, just really let it be. I know it's not perfect, <laughs> it's not perfect, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't try and do the best we can. Now we should do the best we can to try and help this earth. Be more sustainable for future generations. We should definitely do that, but it's where we can do that from a place that's not driven. We can do that from a more conscious place. And in this second noble truth, as we start to really, in moments, completely accept this is how it is, rather than keep saying it should be a bit different. And this letting go, this letting be, sometimes it will help us to begin to recognize that actually in within the moment, within whatever's happening, there is this innate spaciousness and peace and presence and unshakability and luminosity. This nibbana, this peace, is always here and now, always inviting, always revealing itself. And then the third noble truth of practice is to just recognize that. Not to attain it or not to have to deserve it. In moments, just recognizing here and now this same this piece that the Buddha tasted he said it's like the salt in the sea wherever wherever you taste the sea is the same salt it's the same taste the taste that the Buddha tasted is the same taste that we taste and when we're not when we're busy not struggling we have moments of just... Letting things be. And so to to deepen or to move towards this recognition of this nibana or niroda The fourth ennobling truth that the Buddha taught is the, that there is a path, there is a way of cultivating. First of all, to apprehend and overcome the experience of suffering, to awaken to it and to, and to um, work with it consciously. There is a way to begin to transform desire so it's not just driving us but can be honed and used to support our way of awakening. And there is a way to begin to deepen into this recognition and realisation of the amata dharma, the changeless. And this way he taught us the eightfold path, this path that we've been cultivating, this path of ethics and harmlessness, harmless living, careful living, this path of cultivating balanced effort and energy, this path of wholesome action and intention and speech, this path of meditation and of mindfulness and of samadhi. He said, This path, as we in moments, as we cultivate this path, this path of understanding and wisdom, as we cultivate and hone our. Right view, our right understanding, and begin to reflect as we've been doing today. Based on some stability of mindfulness, some application of inquiry, you begin to see simple things like the changing nature of the light, of the sounds, of the feelings. You begin to see everything's arising and passing back into this one moment, into this one awareness he said, as we cultivate these factors of the path and little by little they will surely break up that which obstructs our true vision this ignorance of the mind this profound avicca, not seeing clearly so in this, this practice it's only ever really about just this much what's here right in front of us applying a moment of path activity here and now So sometimes it can seem so daunting and such a big journey but the journey is only ever in this moment. A journey that takes us more and more back to where we've always been. Back to our true home. Back to our peaceful heart. Back to our unshakable heart. This path, the Buddha said, is an ancient path. It's always been there. The Buddha didn't discover it I mean, he didn't create it, he rediscovered it. He said, It's just as one faring through a forest should see an ancient road, traveled by people of former times, with beautiful pools, groves, and gardens. So have I seen an ancient path traversed by enlightened ones of old. Having fully come to know this path, I have established this way, for the welfare of all. Thank you for listening.